This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm James Carlton. Welcome to God Forbid. You remember during the first and second wave of COVID, the panic buying of toilet paper? Well, demand for another product also went sky high. We stripped the shelves of plants, edible plants, vegetables and herbs, and those plants were planted among the 10 million homes in Australia with a garden. The ritual and journey of gardening can be frustrating, rewarding, even awe-inspiring. And it's been that way forever. Thousands of years ago, we read about the Garden of Eden. In Islam, there's Jenna, which means paradise or heaven, but it also means garden. And yet for most of us, gardening is not a religious practice, despite how religiously we practice it. So then, why do Australians spend so many hours on their gardens? Today, it's the first in a series of what you might call secular but spiritual rituals. And I'm very pleased to welcome Robin Francis, a pioneer in permaculture in Australia. Robin, welcome to God Forbid from Nimbin. Hello. Wonderful to be here. Also on the panel, Dr Rachel Davies, research fellow at the Australian Catholic University in Melbourne. Rachel, welcome to God Forbid. Thank you so much for having me. So, Rachel, today gardening can simply be an exercise in sort of do-it-yourself home improvement. But tell me about what theologians and saints thought and said about the garden and the gardener through history. Uh, Yes, well, it does appear as a motif. So I've just started working on a new project that explores more broadly landscapes in the Western Christian tradition and how they function in a particular genre of mystical literature that seeks to map Mm. the, the self's journey of healing from its fractured relationship with itself and with others, including especially the natural world. And gardens are one of the motifs that appears in in the genre, and it's very interesting to follow. There um, are references to the soul as a garden, um, God coming into the soul as a garden. Why is the garden a soul? How do you how do you mean the garden is a soul? Yeah, or the soul is a garden. So there's this idea that we can tend to our inner lives and grow and cultivate the virtues and inflows grace and love and these blossoms arise and this mystery, this gentle benevolent mystery that the tradition calls God, although I don't think you have to refer to that mystery as God, comes in and makes its home inside of us and it's a it's it's a gentle thing and a kind thing, and and we feel at peace in ourselves. Um, There's a kind of relinquishment of ego, and it's it's a very lovely motif that appears in the tradition. And is there an idea in the tradition that, say, the repetitive act of tilling the soil back and forth over and over again, year after year, which is a simple act, but a meditative act that has a spiritual dimension? Um, There's certainly the idea that being faithful in kind of showing up to spiritual practices, which I suppose may be gardens. I mean, there was a practice of, of course, the Benedictines laboring, working and praying or at labora, and that was a, a kind of a daily ritual. Just being there, being faithful to the rhythms of the day and to practices of prayer and contemplation would, with time and patience, allow for the inflow of these gentle things to come in and, and remake us and, and make us more at home in ourselves and in the world in relationship to others. So, yes, that is there. 
And to see how that works in contemporary practice, Robin Francis told me about the not very lush, compacted old block of cow pasture you bought many, many years ago. (laughs) Well, uh, in permaculture, we really want to restore landscapes. We talk about regenerative design and regenerating the land and the biodiversity. And I like to practice what I preach. So it was lovely starting with a blank slate of something that had been sort of abused for many decades and, uh, you know, sort of designing the system first, looking carefully at the elements, the sun angles throughout the year, where the wind came from, where the water flowed, and then sort of designing that integrated landscape and then sort of zooming down to the detail. Is that why they say permaculture is more about watching than working the garden? Well, it's a balance of two. Like the first permaculture principle, according to David Holmgren's iteration of them, is observe and interact. And uh, it's something that's constantly with me. And it's, you know, permaculture is more than just the garden. We apply these to social systems, to economic systems, to community development and, and so forth. So with everything, you know, we observe and interact. It's a basic tenet of science, isn't it? And we find, you know, so many of the wisdoms of ancient and indigenous cultures came from astutely observing, you know, what's happening, what works, what doesn't work and then improving on that. And in your little corner of paradise, that cow pasture, which is now known as Janbung Gardens, tell me, how long have you had it and what is it like now as a functioning ecosystem? Oh, well, I started uh, actually 30 years ago. I sort of did the earthworks first because there was no water here and I had to sort of create water catchment systems. How did you do for that? For the garden. So, so I designed the water system from the high point to the lowest point. I put a dam there to collect water to gravity feed down through the gardens for irrigation, for watering and for the animals. And then there's a series of things that help the water meander through the landscape. I've got a serious swale, which is like a shallow contour drain that goes across the property and it takes the runoff from the top dams to the far side of the property so we don't get flash flooding around our built environments. I've got my residence here. We've got our education centre. And the drains I actually use for my taro production and for my Queensland arrowroots and uh, they take up any nutrients that leach off the garden. So all the way through there's these integrated systems and one of the permaculture principles is to find solutions. You know, there are not problems, there are only solutions and to find the opportunity in these adversities or in these challenges. And Rachel Davies, why, why does this interest you, the garden, but landscapes generally? You're from Canada, so you've got some pretty amazing landscapes there. In Australia <laughs> too, we have our own unique places and spaces. Is this spiritual for you? It is. Um, it has been at various moments over the course of my life. I think most recently, having moved to Australia and recently become an Australian, um, I came here kind of on the back of some pretty significant personal loss and uh, found myself not really knowing kind of who I was anymore. And I found it terribly comforting to like to arrive in a country that was so wholly unfamiliar to me. 
where, you know, the <laughs> the mammals hopped and birds walked around on the ground. And, and I found this kind of healing to interact with an unfamiliar landscape and to kind of rediscover myself in that landscape. And so I did quite a lot of walking during the pandemic here. I live out in the Dandenong Ranges um, east of, of Melbourne. So watching for lyre birds, um, tilling the soil in my little patch of garden here, even though I'm not much of a gardener, um, there was a kind of gentleness to it all and, and a kind of a way of letting myself go into something that was bigger than, than my anxieties and my own losses. It was, it was just very consoling to me to have that interaction. And Robin Francis, you have an interest in Celtic wisdom and spirituality. Is that incompatible with best practice modern permaculture, given the Australian climate is completely unlike the Celtic climate? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what really stimulated my interest in that. We start our permaculture design course with a session on cultural ecology and how cultures, through the need to survive, you know, had to learn to work with their environment. And so a lot of the song, the dance, the stories, the mythologies are really about how we live, you know, with our environment. And I was giving all these examples of all these exotic cultures from all around the world, and I've worked with a lot of Indigenous groups over the years. And one day I sat down and well, well, what about my own roots? Mm. And so that stimulated my delving into my roots sort of pre uh, Roman Empire, Europe. I mean, Europe was just this incredible food forest before the Romans came in and then after the Roman political empire was the Roman Catholic Empire. And so we find that a lot of that knowledge got lost and usurped. But wasn't it replaced with better knowledge, the Romans being the great, you know, empire of history? <laughs> well, in terms of politics and war and uh, stomping on people and conquest. Anyway, back to what stimulated <laughs> my interest in my Celtic roots. My ancestors all come from Celtic country except for one branch that comes from Norse, but that's like a, a sister culture. Hmm. And discovering that, you know, like the Druids, one of their key functions, uh, apart from law keepers and so forth, was to also observe the seasons and the cycles and know when to plant the crops, when to harvest the crops and calling the seasonal festivals, then going into it deeper, the eightfold year of uh, seasonal celebrations that are the key markers, the solstices, the equinoxes and the mid-season points. And they relate to, you know, different compass directions, uh, different times of day, different uh, times of the human life cycle. So you've got this fully integrated philosophy and they still ring true. All these different levels of meaning just all dovetailed into each other. And it ties back to what Rachel was saying earlier. We are also nature. Nature is not something that's separate and external to us. We are part of it. And uh, I think that's part of the big disconnect that is at the dis-ease in a lot of people, you know, mentally, spiritually, socially. What do you say, Rachel Davies? Do we have a, a fractured relationship between ourselves and our natural worlds? Oh, I think deeply. I, I think deeply that's true. You know, I, a lot of people ask me because I work in these Christian texts, you know, well, isn't it the fault of, you know, of, 
of Christianity and um, especially as it developed through the Enlightenment in the early modern period as kind of the distance between body and mind and spirit and materiality kind of deepened in Western thought. Are you talking about this Christian idea that man has dominion over the world? Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's a, a, a question that I get. And I think that's a really important question to ask. But I do see this kind of problematic development in Christianity as as actually a departure from early and, and medieval Christian readings of the Bible um, and our relationship with the created world. So I don't think that we need to read our text that way. And in fact, I think it's imperative that we do the work of retrieval and reinterpretation so that we aren't reading it that way anymore. But in the earlier times, didn't Christians and pre-Christians consider nature could be a, a bad place, a dangerous jungle? I suppose so, yes. I mean, I think that that's a human fear. But I think the trajectory of the tradition, and especially these texts that I was mentioning earlier, are about reconciliation with our environment, reconciliation with the world Mm -hmm. and ourselves, and the banishment of fear. I mean, the whole problem in these texts that I look at is that we have this alienated relationship with ourselves and others. We're grasping, we're possessive, and are trying to, we make things smaller by trying to dominate them. So the whole problem is domination. Mm. And the whole journey then that we are called to make in these texts is away from the spirit of domination towards relinquishment, um, dispossession, openness, generosity. And so these texts kind of outline that journey. And along the way, they will introduce landscapes as a way of articulating what this journey looks like and and kind of the landmarks that we can encounter and how we can more deeply enter and participate in this process of kind of divestment of, of relinquishing. Yes, well, uh, that leads us perfectly to ABC's own Laura Tingle, who learnt those lessons the hard and easy ways. Uh, She'll share the joy and surrender she finds in her native garden that she's been growing for so long on the New South Wales south coast. It's God forbid. You know, Laura Tingle, I'm sure, is the chief political correspondent for ABC 730. She spent most of her 35-year career as a journalist reporting on federal politics. But for much of that time, she's also kept a garden, a native garden, on the south coast of New South Wales for two decades. It became a place that was close to Parliament House, Canberra, but a million miles away from the frenzy of politics. She writes of her joys, battles and ultimate surrender in that garden in the monthly essay a patch of land. And Laura Tingle spoke to God Forbid producer Sam Carmody. My job involves talking to people, listening to people talking, you know, yabba, 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 yabba all day long. And we'd have these long holidays down at the coast at the stage when I was really establishing the garden. And I'd go out early while everybody else was asleep and wander around the garden and there was this whole vision of the garden. There was this whole idea of what it would be like and what it would achieve on the block. And I wanted to plant just purely, very purest, uh, not just native plants, but native plants of the region. And I'd wanted, you know, particular colour schemes, you know, particular sort of hmm. mauves and things which suited the soft light of the of the garden. So. In its early days, it was all about trying to establish this vision we had of the garden, trying to establish this space, if you like, and then sort of seeing what worked and what didn't. Yeah, and another thing I think you write about beautifully is this personal ambition for 
a garden. I mean, they're not places that escape our aspiration. Gardens can also be very much a kind of consumer product and you find yourself online and using all these different social media pages for inspo of... (laughs) Of oh, the garden, yeah. the dream garden you want. And then there's the reality. Mm. When you try and execute it, you find yourself in this tussle that is beyond you. I mean, can you talk a little bit more about that yeah. concept of surrender that you write about? So the, the part of the coast that we were on, it's very volcanic. Mount Dromedary, which is down a bit further down the coast at Tilba Tilba, is this spectacular old, very ancient volcano. And at some point it spat out lots of rocks of about, I don't know, 20 centimetres across and um, a lot of them landed on our block of land. <laughs> so uh, inevitably, you'd spend a lot of your time when you're planting things going at the uh, earth with a, a mattock only to look a bit like Bugs Bunny or <laughs> or Daffy Duck or something, something like boing, <laughs> because you'd hit one of these rocks. And all of those sorts of basic things of where the garden where the soil, where the hill allowed you to go uh, changed what it was you could do. I mean, it was a baking hot hillside when it was completely bare and that meant that you put things into the garden and while technically you knew they should be able to grow there, it was just too hot for them or this northeasterly would come up and it was just too windy for them or we had a couple of years of really savage drought and then, you know, massive rainfalls and some native plants don't really like getting wet feet. So you'd go out and everything would look fine and the next day there'd be carnage and everything would have suddenly died. And that meant that you had to change all the grand vision of, you know, what particular plants you'd have in what particular places. But then, of course, as time went on, you'd always been improving the soil as you went. So things flourished more. Other parts of the garden just weren't weren't going to cooperate in any way, shape or form on that. But they all end up sort of giving each other a bit of protection. We planted some trees at the bottom of the block and that just acted as a bit of a softener of the wind, a bit of a windbreak. And so things would start to flourish and plants of different sizes would grow up to ways that they don't grow in other places. I mean, I go to the National Botanic Gardens here in Canberra and see plants that I have in my garden at the coast. And because it's pretty cold here, uh, they they look nice and small and sweet. (laughs) But down at the coast, they grow into these monsters, which absolutely dominate all these other plants. So... At some point, you have to just go, right, well, I know what I was planning to do here, but it hasn't quite worked out that way. But these things rather like it, and I rather like them. So I'm just going to stick with that, and and you adjust accordingly. There's a kind of changing of lens, or maybe it's sort of return to a lens that you have when you're a child and you kind of – I mean, I guess your face is soft and so close to the dirt. You're kind of aware of – how many other things you coexist with? And I'm becoming aware of just how many spiders we have in the garden of all these different descriptions and, and types I've never kind of seen before that crawl out of the soil. And, you know, when I've been trying to dig a, a garden bed in, there's these frogs that live, I think this is a very Southwest WA thing, but there's these, these frogs <laughs> that live in the dirt. And I've dug two up, yeah. these native frogs that unfortunately I didn't sort of cut them in half with my shovel and they could sort of hop away. You really have to get in down amongst it, you know. Um, This was a a garden which was always getting sort of consumed by all the wretched cooch and other grasses around the place. And the only way to get them out so that they didn't choke, you know, the young natives so that the plants were winning over the grasses, the only way you could do that was to get down on your belly 
and crawl along the ground underneath the plants. And it did give you this real, they won't say connection with the earth because suddenly you were conscious of all the creatures that you could see and couldn't see, but was sort of vaguely alarmed might be there. I mean, mm. this was major funnel web country. There's some beautiful red-bellied black snakes that I'd seen wandering past from time to time. And I know there'd been some brown snakes seen down there. And the extraordinary thing is I never encountered anything more frightening than a blue-tongued lizard <laughs> in all of my crawling around under the undergrowth. No, you, you just become so conscious of, of all of these little ecosystems, all of these small things all pottering around. You'd be you know, conscious of the worms and the bugs and, and everything else. And you know, it's it's quite nice when you're not worried about being bitten by something highly poisonous. It's it's quite pleasant, really. <laughs> <laughs> and that's Laura Tingle speaking to God forbid producer Sam Carmody about leaving the sharks of Canberra politics for the spiders and snakes of the south coast of New South Wales. Uh, well, Robin Francis, um, she describes as beautiful those funnel webs, red-backed spiders, brown snakes and red-billy blacks. <laughs> Does this mean beauty is in the eye of the beholder, given these are among the deadliest animals on earth? Well, we've got to coexist with everything, you know. We don't have um, to. There is a thing called insect spray. No, no. Look, they have a role in the wider scheme of things in 30 years here and I'm coexisting with red-bellied blacks with brown snakes, carpet snakes. None of them have bitten me. The worst I've had is a wasp sting. Um, my grandchildren are, are absolutely fascinated by insects and, and it's wonderful walking around the garden with them. They notice little things that I don't see. And, you know, oh, Omar, take a photo, you know. And so we're getting this lovely collection of photos of these minuscule little tiny, very colourful spiders and no, it's it's so important. If you want to live with nature, if you want to live with the wildlife, you've got to have life here. And, you know, I don't use any pesticides. My biggest issue really in the garden is uh, bandicoots digging up all my seedlings. So I just put little barriers around individual beds that need protecting until things are big enough to cope with them. And it's just been incredible from this barren cow pasture to see the wildlife come in. And I am just sharing this property with so many wonderful beings. It's, mm. um, it's, it's just my great joy. And Dr. Rachel Davies, sharing that joy of Robin is, as we heard in that piece, Laura Tingle, who spoke of all her troubles in dealing with the land. It was too wet, it was too hot, it was too windy, sometimes all at the same time. And yet she slowly <laughs> surrendered to that uncertainty. Yeah, it moved me terribly to just reflect, I guess, with Laura's help on how this surrender to the sorts of landscapes that I look at in very old texts is something that happens in real time in very profound ways through our engagement with um, very physical, you know, the, the landscapes that we're trying to reconcile with as humans, especially in this historical moment. Very moving, yeah. And I also just want to say in response to your earlier question to Robin, um, I think it's exciting, uh, exhilarating to be with these creatures that are kind of scary and that invite us to, I don't know, kind of live 
on the edge. And Is that because when you grew up in Canada, you saw grizzlies or something? <laughs> Maybe. I lived on an island with mountain lions and bears. But um, I don't know. These ones scare me in a different way because they're so small and you can't see them until maybe it's too late. But there's something also kind of exciting about knowing that I'm an animal in the world with other animals and I'm vulnerable. Yeah. And it feels good. It makes me feel alive. I've really appreciated the work of George Monbiot, his book Feral, about how we kind of uh, – how we evolved with these predators and how they inspired this kind of inward creativity and how we are vulnerable to what he describes as ecological boredom um, these days with these monocultures. So I think it's important to give ourselves over to the wonder of the not knowing our spiritual environment and our physical environment and kind of the convergence of those two things is meaningful to us as humans. And, and Robin, your passion for gardens goes back to the 70s in Australia. Did our gardens, our quarter acre blocks look different then? Was our gardening culture different? Well, actually, we can go back a little bit further. I grew up in the 50s and 60s. My parents had a quarter acre block in Inverell out in the Western Slopes, and it was just so productive. You know, my mum grew so much of our food, vegetables. We had lots of fruit trees. Dad looked after the animals. We had chickens, ducks, a couple of hives of bees, a milking goat that we tethered out to mow the neighbours' lawns. And so I sort of grew up in a really productive, highly self-reliant um, situation. So for me, you know, permaculture was like a, a natural next step. And in the 70s, I traveled extensively. I went to over 40 countries in five years and lived for three and a half years in Bavaria in South Germany. And what really fascinated me in my travels was the whole village culture and the different methods of agriculture and how people grew their food, how they preserved their food, how they, you know, like how they survived before we had supermarkets and refrigerators and all this sort of stuff. So one little thing I will say, I think things are really changing. Like you mentioned COVID before and how suddenly people realised, well, we can't depend on these supply chains. We need to start to look after some of our own needs. There's a whole movement now of people starting to look at what they can actually do and grow at home. And, I mean, you know, Costa on Gardening Australia, I taught him permaculture back in the 80s. And I think we're seeing a major shift. Well, we are with Robin Francis, a pioneer in Australian permaculture, and Rachel Davies, a research fellow in religion and theology at the Australian Catholic University in Melbourne. Up next, the gardener psychiatrist, Suze Jewett-Smith, cultivating the mind. A growing body of scientific evidence suggests gardens and gardening have therapeutic qualities. That's why you increasingly find gardens in places you might not imagine. Hospices, addiction treatment centres, even prisons. Psychiatrist and gardener Sue Stewart-Smith explored the evidence and her own personal experience in her book The Well-Gardened Mind. And she spoke to Geraldine Duke back in 2020. I think the structure of the seasons in the garden and... The sort of almost ritual-like tasks that we do, uh, you know, that you do certain things at certain times of year and another year comes around and you find yourself doing them again. I think these things are very stabilising for us. I also think, and I've had, I write about my personal experience of this, that um, 
you know, when you're feeling very demotivated or or burnt out or depressed, the garden doesn't let you procrastinate for too long. It kind of pulls you into doing things. You, I, I certainly, I, I suddenly wake up, oh, there's a window of opportunity here. And if I don't grab it and get my <laughs> seeds sown, as it were, you know, I'm going to miss the moment. And then once you've done that, once you've done those things, you're kind of pulled along by the growth. You set something in motion. It's such a wonderful kind of co-creation with nature mm. that, you know, you bring some of the creativity, you bring something to it, but actually nature pulls you along with that growth. But you, but you also have a couple of other really intriguing thoughts. You say it's kinder in a way to the psyche because it, it lets you learn. You do have second chances. If something fails this year, you can try again next year. And then you have this lovely sentence, when everything is about utilising time for maximum output, we become preoccupied with not wasting time and feel we don't have enough time and we end up trying to live by a clock we're always trying to beat, whereas gardening simply will not conform to that, will it? No, it won't, because we have to live by the much older kind of cyclical clock and both the diurnal rhythms and the, and the seasonal rhythms. And actually, that's really our roots. People lived by that clock long before linear time was, you know, mechanical time or digital time was invented. So I think it returns us to something. And my view is it also helps us return to our own rhythms of restoration and repair. You know, when you're recovering from a breakdown or a loss or trauma, whatever it is in your life, you can't rush those things either. You know, our, our neural networks, they grow and they repair themselves in a way that's not that dissimilar from how plants grow. Yes, you have. there's another lovely quote, I see gardening as a reiteration. I do a bit, then nature does her bit, then I respond to that, and so it goes on, not unlike a conversation. Again, it's not in your thrall to set the tone, <laughs> um, there's, but it, it's something else is uh, is governing the the time frame yes and, and actually i was very struck that that's my personal experience that i'm describing there but i was very struck when i went and did interviews with for instance on rikers island the jail complex in new york how important that relationship is and what was to people and and i think for when we're sort of overloaded or our 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 lives have got very complex or painful. Relating to people is can be just too challenging and demanding and distressing sometimes. But actually, to get into a relationship with another form of life, a simpler form of life, sometimes it actually helps people get back into the human world of relating. It, it has even been described as a simple social relationship because we, we have to notice, we have to respond, but we haven't got all the emotional complexities, if you like. But plants also give us a lot of pleasure in the way that people, you know, we can derive that from people. Their beauty, you know, they surprise us. Um, they can disappoint us too, you know, the pest. We, we get the whole range of emotions as well. But, but, you know, but it is a relationship. And I think that's one of the things I really wanted to get across in the book is I think we're entering into a, a relationship when we, when we garden. You know, we're now recognising that, that nature really does have, uh, helps the healing process along. And that's psychiatrist and gardener Sue Stewart-Smith, author of The Well-Gardened Mind, speaking with Geraldine Doog. Dr Rachel Davies, what do you make of what she had to say? 
Oh, yeah. I think I really liked what she had to say about um, how you can relate to plants when relating to people is hard. I can certainly think of a couple times in my life where that's been true. I vividly remember a, a school service project I was a part of for a couple of weeks and just kind of the exasperation of of having to manage all these people and the interpersonal tensions. And eventually I, I just kind of gave up and I went to the Bougainvilleas and there was a, a bunch of them that we were trying to plant around the school. And I just, every morning I just watered the Bougainvilleas and it was somehow very healing to me. And I eventually was able to find my way back to people, but I had to have that kind of morning meeting with the plants and carrying the water and bringing them back to life and making sure they were sustained somehow was sustaining to me as well. Mm. So yeah relate to that. Robin Francis, how do you respond? Yeah, look, it, it really keeps me in touch with the garden. I feel disconnected if I'm not out there every day and just observing what's happening, what's going on, what's producing, what's flowering, the seeds I need to, you know, look out for harvesting next week and things like that. It's a constant ongoing thing. And I've got a little saying, nature calls the shots. And another uh, favourite of mine is that permaculture or gardening is like dancing with nature where nature leads the dance. So <laughs> it's this sort of two-way thing. It's It's a constant feedback and response and it's a metaphor for life you know it really nourishes me spiritually and intellectually as well as physically what about actually healing the sick i mean uh, this idea of uh, respite and healing in the garden have you seen this Oh, yes. And look, mm. the number of people that have come here and spent time as, you know, volunteers camping on the place, they've arrived really sick with mental and physical illnesses. And the the healing that takes place is quite dramatic. Okay, that's just purely anecdotal. Mm. But one of my graduates she brought her permaculture perspectives and thinkings into the therapeutic horticulture course that's run by TAFE. And so we find a lot of permaculture people around the world are working with people that have got health problems, um, drug problems, dispossessed, refugees. Uh, it's, it's just really, really inspiring. And I think it's something really primal and it's something really human is to be interacting with the life around us. And, you know, most kids, you know, in the city, they've got no idea that, that a potato is a vegetable that's dug out of the ground. Mm. Indeed. But the availability of uh, the garden to do all this good, as you described, it's kind of a privilege, isn't it? I mean, you were speaking of vulnerable people. Increasingly, they're the ones who don't get access to these things. You know, we need to allocate land to that. And the community garden movement is massive. And Australia was a fairly late adopter with community gardens. And we find that there's a history of them in Europe. And I suppose it relates back to the old commons. And it's so important that we have these spaces that are available for people to come and interact with nature and to garden. And it's a beautiful way to meet other people. Uh, Rachel Davies, what do you say? I think that there are models for what it would look like to make the land like more accessible. Certainly in America, there's a movement in the in the urban parts of the country, in, for example, Detroit, where a lot of the manufacturing 
manufacturing has come to a halt over the years with the auto industry. These old desolate places where we were building machinery have been taken over by gardens. And it's it's led mm-hmm. by, by people who have been marginalized often. And there's beautiful, beautiful examples of reconnection with the inner city poor and, and gardening. So th- these, are, these are places that in their cement form, like these boarded up old houses, no one wants to buy them for any price. But in their dirt form, they suddenly attract a new value. Well, we we used them up. We again, going back to this conversation we were having earlier about domination. We kind of used the land for everything that, that we thought we could get out of it, and then after we used it all up and stole everything, then we kind of abandon it. But what we find is that nature nature is bigger than that and takes over again, and the gift can be renewed and is being renewed. And th- those who have been harmed by our industries are finding ways to reclaim it and to be leaders in this reclaiming and this renewal of of the gift of relationship with the land. And I find that so inspiring. Uh, There's so many inspiring stories. Just look at New York City, the Green Gorillas. Uh, They take on wastelands and set up hundreds of community gardens in Mm. New York City. And look, they're even setting up community gardens on rooftops. And working with unemployed youth to set up market gardens on rooftops. So we need to open our eyes and look at new opportunities because anywhere there's a flat surface, we can build up compost and, and create a garden, a place of beauty. Yeah, I mean, even here in Melbourne, in Fitzroy, you know, there's a cultivating community group in the government housing. There's wonderful gardens that are being grown and people coming together from all cultures and growing this food and then selling it to people in the, in the surrounding neighborhoods. They've got a, a bread bakery going on right there on the land. So you don't even have to look abroad. Like, it's right here in Australia. Well, on our end, God forbid whether this provides hope in an era of climate change. We'll look at that up next. The challenges of gardening have deepened with a changing climate. In some parts of Australia, we've seen record heat waves, water shortages and too much water, severe flooding in other cases too. Well, Bruce Pascoe is Professor at the University of Melbourne. He's also a farmer, and his 2014 book, Dark Emu, is about Indigenous land management knowledge and practice. The book attracted much acclaim and controversy too. Personally, Bruce Pascoe, in his 70s, is still working the land. He says it's a responsibility he owes to his grandchildren and that we must learn the history of country if we are to best tread a future course. God forbid producer Sam Carmody spoke to Bruce Pascoe on the phone from his farm in Malakuta, Victoria. Whereas Europeans and their religions talk about man having dominion over the earth, she has dominion over us. That is Mother Earth has dominion over us and our entire responsibility is to her. Uh, She has no responsibility for us. We have to be careful that we look after her and if we take food from her that that is a sustainable act. And it might sound a bit like mawkish uh, new age environmentalism, but it's actually rock solid old philosophy from Aboriginal people about how to sustain life on earth. 
it does seem to be that there is a broad attempt to kind of repair what had been an estranged relationship with the natural world. But that seems complicated to reconnect or repair that relationship when the natural world is not probably its old self, you know, when it itself is under strain. How do we do that? How do we, how do we reconnect or repair a relationship with nature when it, by all the weight of scientific evidence we have, is itself suffering? I think it's important to neither disdain the earth or to over-romanticise our connection to earth, but to have a very philosophical and practical conversation with the earth. In Australia, uh, the majority of Australians, 97% of Australians, have to understand the history of this country first. Without understanding the history, you completely misread our responsibilities to the country. And we keep on making the same mistake again and again and again. By not understanding the relationship Aboriginal people had with the land, we keep on ignoring the lessons of 100,000 years. And we keep on doing stupid things with water on the second driest continent on Earth. We grow crops that have a high profit margin, but that profit is based on enormous water consumption. So therefore, we irrigate from rivers that don't have enough water in them to sustain such a consumption level. And until we understand the history of the country and what Aboriginal people were actually doing and how they looked after the country, we'll continue to be farming and gardening with a rag across our face, uh, blind to the real nature of the country. Many, many gardeners are sympathetic to the country, understand the difficulty of growing plants on, on a continent like this. And uh, I can remember in the 1970s when people started growing grevilleas and hakeas, it was only scratching the surface of understanding the country, but it was a start. We'd stopped planting elms and oak trees and um, started to look at the country as if she was herself. And that's an important thing. And when we understand the history and forget all the colonial rules that have so twisted this relationship, we'll have a much better relationship with her and she with us. Bruce, you're a farmer and you work on the land daily. How do you do that work with a hopefulness, you know, considering the great challenges and threats both the environment and we connected to it uh, face. How do you maintain a hope for the future? Well, I have four grandchildren, and if I give up hope, I give up hope on them, and I refuse to do that because they're all intelligent. They've all expressed the wish to make a difference, so I have to keep working to give them a chance. We cannot drop our hands. We might think it's dire, we might feel pessimistic, but we cannot stop working. And I, I think the earth has enormous powers of recovery. This farm I'm on was burnt to a crisp in the 2019 fires. We had a rain six weeks after the fires started and, um, and just as uh, we got them under control, it rained. Within days, there were fronds of tree ferns shooting we had maidenhair on the riverbank, tubers of monong and lily uh, wanting to shoot out of the ground. And they were telling us um, it's not all lost. Mother Earth was saying to us, it's, it's not over. I'm much stronger than you think I am. And she was also saying we can't continue to abuse either each other 
or Mother Earth without repercussion. The Earth's a beautiful place. She's strong. She wants to repair, and I believe she will repair. And even if I'm proven wrong, I'll at least have kept faith with my grandchildren. Academic, author and farmer Bruce Pascoe speaking to, God forbid, producer Sam Carmody. Well, Robin Francis, in your part of the world, the Nimbin Valley, you suffered, like him, floods and fire. Was this a, a renewal or a disaster? You know, some things suffered, but the place survived and most things thrived and... You know, I'm constantly learning and, you know, thinking into the future, you know, okay, when the next El Nino comes, you know, and we've got three years of drought again and we're getting 40-plus heat waves and so on, how do I prepare the place for that? So I'm making adjustments in the garden. I'm looking at simple retrofits for the buildings and, you know, planning for the future. How do we adapt? And while we're adapting, how are we contributing to, you know, mitigation solutions? I mean, you know, it, the, the, the problems are huge out there. And I meet a lot of people that are just sort of, you know, crippled in fear and they just switch off and then mm-hmm. they're in denial because they just can't deal with the reality. But, I mean, death is a reality. Uh, no matter whether you're a planet or an ecosystem or an individual. And I think you, our death denial is sort of part of the problem uh, that mm. limits us from really appreciating life. And so, yeah, okay, I'm aware of the problems, but my passion in life is being in service to life and mm-hmm. not crippling myself through a fear of death because it could hit any time. I think that's one of the beautiful things of gardening is that you're constantly interacting with life and death and regeneration. You know, I wake up in the mornings here and I'm just being bathed in, you know, bird choruses and uh, just the joy of life around me. And so uh, how can I sort of, yeah, crawl into a little self-pitying hole? And Rachel Davies, what do you say? I I found it. I found it moving and I felt a sense of urgency in me as I was listening to, to Bruce and now Robin, I guess talking about the resilience of nature and our responsibilities to to nature. But I mean, nature can't be resilient forever, even though it is very resilient. So I, I hope that our gardens do outlast us. But it, it made me wonder as I was listening to both Robin and Bruce like, what do I have? What resources do I have? And I thought, you know, earlier, Robin, going back to her Celtic roots seemed so wise. So I think it's important for us to to each ask ourselves that question. What resources do I have to be awake, to be alive, to be attentive to death and to life, um, honestly and compassionately and uh, deepen deepen our connection with the world around us and each other? Mm. And, and last question to you, Robin, before the quiz, a firm question, if you don't mind. It's all very good and well for you, me, everyone else to grow a nice garden and every now and then we might get a capsicum or two. But the task <laughs> of feeding, you know, 25 million Australians falls to professional farmers. And if they're going to keep making carrots at less than $2 a kilo, I mean, you can't grow carrots at that price, even if you tried your best. Look, um, what's the value of love? What's the value of my mm-hmm. grandchildren's life? What is the value of that tree mm. that provides shade and habitat for myriad creatures? We are so stuck in this capitalist, quantitative, commercial paradigm that we're not seeing the wood for the trees. 
back in um, 2010, we started up a food security group in my village. Now I can get 80% of my food needs from within a 30-kilometre radius of where I live. That includes my rice, my milk, my yoghurt, my cheeses, pasta. At a competitive price? At a competitive price, well, some things might be a little cheaper than the supermarket. I've never bought fruit and vegetables in a supermarket. I mean, they just con you into buying too much anyway. You know, a kilo bag of tomatoes will be cheaper than buying three heritage loose tomatoes and then you still only eat three tomatoes and the other five get thrown away. I mean, 40% of the food bought in Australia ends up in the trash can. And if we eliminated that waste, we could cut our greenhouse gas emissions by 20% overnight. And people would actually be eating a much better quality food if they spent a little bit more for it locally, grown locally. There are so many solutions. It's, it's the system that is grinding us down. Can I just say also, like, I think the question that you raise needs to be taken seriously because some of us can afford to spend a little more on groceries. And then there are those who, like, really don't have money and the urgency of not having money today when I need, you know, food today. That's important. But I can go up to my local food forest up here in, you know, in Belgrave. And there's volunteers here who are growing food from the goodness of their hearts. And it's a community thing. And I can get a free head of broccoli. Now, how much money and time did it cost to grow that head of broccoli or carrots was was your question. The question kind of falls apart because the whole model of how gardening is happening is different. Like those questions, those commercial questions aren't relevant. And obviously this is just a small scale thing, but I think it's a model for what needs to happen more broadly in society and how we think about food and how we think about economics. And so I see my little local, you know, permaculture place here as a kind of prophetic witness to what I hope will become a larger movement in Australia and will change the way we think and relate so that these questions of, well, how can I get the greatest amount of food for the lowest cost, that we won't be asking that question in that way anymore. That's what I hope. Yes. Well, I'll be asking questions in the way I always do for the Widsend Quiz, (laughs) which is now. Wits End. Yes, it's Wits End, the God forbid quiz. As always, we begin with the buzzers. Now, Robin Francis, your garden is so fertile, in the warmer months, you can't get this song out of your head. Test your buzzer. (laughs) You like that song? I'm not familiar with it. You're not a Wiggles fan? Oh, look, I don't sort of get to watch kids' TV. Okay. Uh, Rachel Davies, you don't have a big garden, which means basically you have this in common with former Prime Minister Scott Morrison. Test your buzzer. I don't hold a hose, mate. Yeah, I I don't (laughs) hold a hose. Okay, first question. Uh, Staying home during the pandemic triggered a gardening boom in Australia. In 2020, including public spending, how many plants were bought in Australia? Two million plants? 200 million or 2 billion plants in the year 2020? I don't hold a hose, mate. I'm going to go for 200 million. The extraordinary answer, but I checked it, it's 2 billion. If you include all government spending, business spending, public spending, plus household and individual spending, 2 billion plants 
were bought. My goodness me. That's wow. $2.6 billion which was spent. Next question. The Celtic year is divided into eight stations or seasons, all representing stages of the human life cycle. So in the Celtic calendar, what does the autumn equinox represent? The autumn equinox, that represents maturity, becoming an elder. Exactly, the autumnal years, the wisdom of old age. That's right, yeah, we've forgotten about the wisdom of the elders in our um, very ageist society. Not at, not at our end, we haven't. <laughs> Next question, the, have a listen. This is the Tasmanian Symphony Orchestra playing the theme to which popular ABC TV program? Any ideas? Mm-mm. Nope. <laughs> Gardening Australia? Yes, it's the old yeah. Gardening yeah. Australia theme, yes. not the current oh. one. Look, Peter Cundall came into my mind when that was playing. Yes, well, he's a Gardening Australia legend, although he I don't is. think he was playing yeah. the violin for that theme song. Um, next question, well, speaking of Gardening Australia, how long has Costa Georgiadis grown his beard? Look, I'm not sure, but he was a clean-shaven, short-haired university student when he did a permaculture course with me in 1987. Now, this isn't actually one of the quiz questions, but more handsome with or without the beard? (laughs) Well, I really like Costa. He's my favourite real-life gardener, and (laughs) I just love his exuberance, and I think it just really suits. It's infectious, his enthusiasm, isn't it? He would be a very different person without his beard. (laughs) Yes, and uh, he decided to grow the beard from a sustainability point of view. He said, 32 years I've not used any disposable products, no razors, no shaving cream. And on that sustainable note, we've got to the end of the quiz, which we'll call a draw, but we thank Rachel and Robin so much for being a part of the show. Um, Robin Francis, thanks for being on God Forbid. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Robin's a pioneer in Australian permaculture and the creator of Janbung Gardens in Nimbin, New South Wales. Dr Rachel Davies, thank you for being on the show. Thank you so very much. And Rachel's a research fellow in religion and theology at the Australian Catholic University in Melbourne. Don't forget you can share and follow the God Forbid podcast on the ABC Listen app. You can email me at godforbid at abc.net.au. I'm James Carlton. Remember to garden and be good. This has been God Forbid. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.